My name is Ike Shepherdson. Welcome to Hope Denver. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we are a church that's all about hope. We think that God's presence gives us hope. That actually being with God, hearing from God, learning from God gives us hope and that Jesus is the hope for the world. Amen? Is that, is that the truth? Yeah, very good. Yeah, we're a vocal church too. Now, one of the things, and this is, this is awful, you don't want to say amen to this because this is a tough thing. One of the things that leaves people feeling most hopeless in our culture is that they go through life alone. And many of us, we know what this feels like, to suffer alone, to live life on our own. This is the thing that leaves people most hopeless in our culture. We live in one of the loneliest cultures in human history. For millennia, people lived in close proximity to an extended family that had close kinship ties to either clan or tribe or, or something that was drawing them in to a sense of community, something that was deeper than themselves. But because of you know, transporta transportation technology, a global economy, the breakdown of the traditional family, people are more lonely than ever. And when I say this, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've lived it. Uh, the health insurer, Cigna, they found that 54% of adults that they surveyed feel like no one actually knows them well. 40% said that their relationships aren't meaningful. Imagine saying that. Your relationships aren't meaningful and that they feel isolated from others. Gen Zers and Millennials are more likely to feel this way. They're more likely to identify themselves as being lonely than even their, their Boomer or Gen X counterparts. Now keep, keep that in mind with the, the fact of loneliness and think about how it's, it's worse. It's worse among young people. And we live in a city where thousands of young people are moving here every year. Thousands of, of young people are moving to Denver every year. Millennials are moving to Denver at faster rates than any other major metropolitan area except for Dallas and Chicago. So what that means is that there's more lonely people in Denver than most other cities in the U.S., and it's growing every day. We have a loneliness problem in our culture. The thing is that that's not the end of the story, and there's good news on the other side of that. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, that's about five-sixths of the way through the Bible if you're new to it. Uh, the New Testament goes like this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. So it's after the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians 12. See, we live in one of the most lonely cultures in human history, but we also, being the people of God, we have a more profound solution in the hope of Jesus. Hope is the solution to the problem of loneliness. The problem of loneliness in humanity finds its solution in the hope of Jesus. And we are a church that is all about hope. The Bible says that we know what love is. We know what inclusion is, what community is. We know what relationships of commitment and affection are because Jesus first loved us. The Bible says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The Bible says that even if my family forsakes me, the Lord will receive me. I'm quoting the Bible here, friends. The Bible says that God sets the lonely in families. The Bible says that I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither depth nor height, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're lonely, Jesus is the answer. I'm already preaching, guys. We're already in. <laughs> I'm already preaching. There's, there's an answer, and it's Jesus. 
you see this, this key thing throughout the history of God's people. In God's story, God always places people into communities where they love and care for one another. And hope lives in the community of God's people. This month at Hope Denver, we're talking about the kinds of rhythms that help us to follow Jesus. What are those things, those, those, uh, those daily um, disciplines, those ways of life, those modes of being that are regular, that help you to live and follow, live with and follow Jesus? How do you have that kind of regular relationship with God? Well, today we're going to talk about how living in the community of God's people, having regularity, a rhythm of being with God's family, that this is the kind of thing that helps you to follow Jesus more and the kind of thing that gives people hope. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, and this is verse 12 and following, and this is the word of the Lord. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Let's skip down to verse 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. For God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no, one, no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another, for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Today what we're going to focus on is that every one of Jesus' followers is needed in God's family. Each of us, every one of us, you're needed. Everybody is wanted and needed in God's family. So we need to commit to a life and community together. This is a rhythm. It's a rhythm to be in community with people on a regular basis. In our culture, relationships are so transactional. If you don't like it, you just cut out. If you don't like an institution, you don't think it's, it's valuing you, you don't, you don't appreciate its mission, you're gone. But in the community of God, people stick together. This is the way that it was meant to work that you have committed relationships with one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're open to hearing from the scriptures today so that it would be your word that corrects us, your word that teaches us how to think and how to live. We want to be people who are formed by the scriptures, knowing that you're speaking to us in them. And we're willing to receive that today. If you're willing to receive from God, from the Bible, just say, yes, I'm open. My heart's open to you. I'm willing to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Every one of Jesus' followers is needed in God's family. So we need to commit to life and community together. This book of 1 Corinthians, it was written by one of Jesus' earliest followers, a man named Paul. And Paul was writing to this church in the city of Corinth. And these guys, they lived in a place in the Roman Empire where people would put their spirituality together, kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure book. Did you guys ever have that? Ever have those choose-your-own-adventure books? Like, I remember one when I was a kid, there was like, Tommy plays baseball, and if you want Tommy to throw a strike, turn to page 54. If you want him to throw a ball, turn to page 96 or whatever. 
this is like, this is spirituality in the ancient world. Interestingly enough, this is spirituality in our world <laughs> today, right? That our culture is just like, whatever you want, that's fine. Whatever's true for you, no problem. And I think there's some problems with that. There's some obvious logical problems with that, right? Like if, if my Muslim friend say, says that Jesus did not die on a cross, and the Bible says that Jesus did, in fact, die on a cross, one of us or both of us is wrong, right? Does that make sense? It's just basic logic, right? I'm not saying that to say that I'm always right about everything. I'm just saying we both can't be right, right? If we believe things that are opposite of one another. And this is the problem with spirituality. Rival spiritualities have rival claims. And people in, in Corinth were living in this kind of world. So you see in the letter to the, to the Corinthians, Paul's calling people out on this kind of stuff. He's saying you can't mix your religion with other kinds of religions. And he's also saying the way that you live is kind of important, which seems like, you know, duh. <laughs> of course that's obvious. But people in Corinth, they, they decided to follow Jesus, but then they kept doing all kinds of terrible things. People were sleeping around with each other. They were, the, the poor were treating the, or sorry, the rich were treating the poor as if they were unimportant. People got special preference because of their social status. And Paul is calling people out again and again, saying this is not how it should be. So God, or, so Paul, the writer of 1 Corinthians, he's pleading with God's people to change their lives and to start living with a particular value in mind. And the value is unity. Unity. He's saying, start looking at the poor as if they deserve special honor. Bring them into your lives. Start caring for one another, not just for what they, people can do for you, but live with commitment to one another in deep relationship. Let's take a look back at the text here. We're going to start at, at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 1. Um, if you're new to the Bible, this is a, a cool opportunity for you. Maybe when you go home, download the YouVersion app. That's a cool way to start reading the Bible. I recommend starting in the book of John. That's a really great place to get into the Bible on a regular basis. But let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. This is verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Paul is saying the problem for these guys is idolatry. Idolatry. This is a key problem in our culture. People are led astray by idols. Now, what's an idol? <laughs> if, if you think of an idol, you might think of like Indiana Jones and the, and the Lost, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's like this little idol. And of course, that's probably more or less what he has in mind here. Um, although there were, there were altars to gods that did not have idols associated with them, uh, in the ancient world, people did believe in disembodied deities as well. Uh, but he's saying that you've been led astray by gods that are not really God at all. And our culture has its idols. And often they're material things. Our culture worships all kinds of things. Did you know that fun is an idol for a lot of people in our culture? Making an awesome Instagrammable memory, right? Instagrammable, you can like quote me on that. That's a, an English word. And Instagram, that's, that's an idol for people. They worship that. That's something they think this is of, of utmost importance in their life, to have those kinds of memories. Um, in our culture, uh, people worship status. That if, if I get to the director level, that's, that's the thing I'm shooting for. Once I get there, I'll know that I've got it. Director level, that's my thing. That's a status thing. And they, they shoot for that. And their whole life is oriented around that. That's an idol. In our culture, people worship sex. As if, as if this physical act can bring you to the utmost of your pleasure and delight in such a way that you've ascended to the pinnacle of what it means to be human. Do you hear all the, how religious that sounds? 
People worship sex that way. People worship money like crazy in our culture. And here's the thing. You know that you have an idol. If you're shooting for a goal in your life, and it's not wrong to have goals. In fact, goals are a really good thing to have. Uh, and if, you know, this time of the year, if you're thinking about the rhythms of your life, shooting for a goal is a good thing. But you know that you have an idol if when you got your goal, you weren't satisfied with it. That you were worshiping something that ought not to have been worshiped. You finally got that promotion. You had that big bonus come in. Your relationship took that next step. You know, we finally did this. When you took that next step, whatever that was, when you finally got that big bonus, if it didn't satisfy you, and, and you thought it would, <laughs> then you probably have an idol in your life. Only God can satisfy you. Only God can fill those places in your heart. And the thing is, is that when you follow Jesus, all of those goals fall into their proper place in your life. And it's not like you stop being ambitious. I'm an ambitious person. I'm a businessman. I shoot for the top. I try to be at the top of my field. I'm a philosopher of religion on the side. If you want to ask me how I do that, I don't know, God's grace or something. I have a good wife too. But like, I have all these ambitions, but they fall into the proper place when you start to worship Jesus. So idolatry is the problem. So Paul's saying that only God can satisfy you. You guys know what this is like, he's saying. Look at verse 3. He says, therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that the validity of one's religious experience is not determined by how deeply they feel things. That religious experience is, is, is validated or it's, uh, it's diminished by virtue of what the message associated with it is. It's a cognitive enterprise. People treat religion as if it's kind of this non-cognitive wish fulfillment. What he's saying is that if people are proclaiming Jesus is Lord, this is true religion. If people are saying Jesus be cursed, then they don't have the spirit of God. That's what he's saying there. That it's not about the inspiration or the depth of your, opi of your opinion or your own experience. It's the spirit of God that causes you to know something. That is that Jesus is Lord. And what he's saying here is that this spirit of God constitutes you as a body, as a family. The Holy Spirit puts people together. The Spirit of God creates the church. The Spirit of God creates the church. This is an important point for us tonight. I, often at Hope Denver, we will recite one of the ecumenical creeds of the Christian church. Has any of you ever been here for this, where we will recite one of the creeds? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, if you don't, like, stay tuned. We're doing it soon. We'll do it again. Uh, one of these kind of... These are long-standing traditions in the Christian community where we proclaim what is true about God. And in, in our creeds, there's often the line, I believe in one holy Catholic church. That there is a church, and it's a family. So this, this idea of family, church, community, we're talking about the same thing. And this church, this group of followers of Jesus, they're constituted by an incredibly large number of Christian families, or you might call them denominations, that confess that Jesus is Lord. So if you want to know if something is legitimate, it's if there's the confession that Jesus is Lord. So if you look at the world's Christians, those who call themselves Christians, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox Christians, they all confess that Jesus is Lord. And even though they have profound differences in important areas, <laughs> those traditions, that they're all part of God's church. And we at Hope Denver believe in that church. Look at verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. 
There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. The assumption in this passage, and you would, you would know this by earlier context in the book of 1 Corinthians, is that there are some people who thought that their gifts were better than other people's gifts. They thought that their personality, their way of doing things, their attitude, or their abilities were the kinds of things that set them apart as being special followers of Jesus, that they were of a different type. And what, he, what Paul is saying here as a correction is that God affirms diversity, that that's a good thing. That there aren't some gifts that are better than others because they all come from one God. That God is the one who gives these things. And so what you need to have is the kind of unity in your diversity to recognize the goodness in somebody else's gift. The focus, of course, shouldn't be on the one who has the gift. It should be on the giver of the gift. There's, you know, there's many people who, when they start to follow Jesus, they choose where they go to church because they like the preacher. And I don't want to call you out if that's why you chose coming here. Like, I believe you. You're right. I'm pretty awesome. But <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but that's, that's such, that's such uh, an immature way to choose a church. People will choose it based on whether or not they like the band, right? Uh, if, if they enjoy the vibe. That's why they choose churches. What he's saying here is that, of course, there's differences there's differences in every family. There's differences in different parts of the body. But it's the same Lord that puts them all together. It's the same God. So the corrective to that is that our focus should be on God. If you're interested in making Hope Denver your family, you should be asking whether or not you think God is moving here. If God is doing something here, is it God that is sending you here? The focus should be on God. It's not the diversity of our gifts. Of course those things are different, and they're good. But is it the Lord who's doing it? That's the key thing. Is the truth about God proclaimed, and is God's presence there? See, the message of the Bible is that God gives different gifts to each of his followers. Now, the word gifts in this passage is the Greek word charismata. You guys want to try that? Say charismata. Charismata. Now, the root word of, the, of charismata is the word charis. And charis means something like grace in the Bible. Now, a theological definition of grace is that it's God's unmerited favor, which means that God loves you and cares for you. He provides for you, and you did nothing to deserve it. That's what grace means. Now, think about that for a second. That means that whatever gifts you have, whatever abilities you have, it's not by virtue of you being an awesome person. It has nothing to do with that. It's an act of God's grace. God it gives gifts, and it's his, it's his ability to do so, and it's his prerogative to give those gifts. God gives gracious gifts to his people. That also means that when you see gifts in other people that aren't quite your thing, you're not really into that, you need to recognize that there's a giver behind those gifts, and that giver is deserving of worship. Therefore, the one who's received the gift is deserving of your love and respect. Let's look at verse 7 together. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is given for the common good. The common good. I love this phrase. The common good. There's an assumption in this passage that the community is to be valued above the interests of any one individual. This is incredibly counterintuitive to modern Western culture. 
Modern Western culture, you are the focus of reality. The individual is the locus of human freedom and responsibility. The, the, the United States is put together to safeguard your individual rights. And through, through kind of the development of Western philosophy, uh, the, the Enlightenment, Western culture has brought us to a point where people believe the lie that they are the most important things in their own reality. The philosopher Ayn Rand, who fa she famously wrote that I can love my husband because I do it selfishly. That for her, self-interest was the pinnacle of human ethics. That her duty was to herself alone. So if she loved her husband, it was because she loved him selfishly. See, Christianity, it's true, Christianity gives radical value to the individual. The Christian perspective on reality says that God died for you. And not just you, but you. That Jesus gave his life for you. That he loves you just how you are. Uh, that it, but it, the Christian picture on reality also sets the individual into a particular kind of context. And that context is the community of God's people. The modern West looks at institutions with suspicion. And at the individual as if she's the most important thing in reality. But God is building a family. He's putting together a community. And he cares about that. And the, what this passage is saying is that the differences in individuals are good, and they're given by God, but they're given for the common good. Did you notice that phrase? I love that phrase, the common good. You can't have the common good without the commitment of individuals to the community. There's no, there's no common good without cooperation. And what that means is that it costs you as an individual something. That it's not just about what you want. That God actually asks something from you to be able to participate in the common good. This requires commitment and regularity. The assumption in this passage is that these people were already meeting together on a regular basis. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer of that book gives, gives a, uh, uh, an encouragement, a command to the people who are hearing it, probably hearing it for the first time, saying, let's not give up meeting together as some in, are in the habit of doing but let's continue to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. People, people lived in community in the ancient world. That was the assumption. And that's not something that I can assume of Western culture today. And that's what I'm asking you to consider today. That you need to live in community. That you need to offer your life. That means a sacrifice of your time to regular life with God's people. To a rhythm of being with God's people. Look at verse 8. Uh, to, to one, there is given the Spirit, uh, given through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So this is saying that God is the one who gives the gifts. God is the one who does these things. Now, that doesn't mean that you're stuck with whoever you are or whatever you have today. In fact, later on in this passage, 
Uh, Paul commands these people who are reading or listening to this book, he says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. So in, in the Christian perspective on reality, God is sovereign. He gives gifts to people. And yet his sovereignty works in tandem with our free will, that we're able to pursue things, we're able to go deeper, and we're able to ask God for gifts. And so the gifts that are related here, one of them was wisdom. This is, uh, the wisdom relates to speech about the gospel. Wisdom is the opposite for Paul uh, from cleverness. That it's, if somebody's wise, they're giving you something that's deep and true and related to God's plan for redemption and not just clever words. It says that some people have a gift of knowledge. That has to do with the accuracy of their spiritual teaching. Some people have a gift for that. Some people have mountain-moving faith. Not just faith like I believe some things, but the ability to trust God. That's what faith means in the Bible. The ability to trust God. Some people have the ability to cooperate with God in physical healing. Christians believe in a supernatural universe where God intervenes in the natural course of events and sometimes people get healed. Some people have the ability to discern between spirits. This is a strange phrase. That some people are able to hear somebody who claims to have a word or a prophecy from God and they're able to say, that's not legitimate. And some people are saying, oh yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly from God. So some people have that ability to discern that way. Some people have the ability to speak about God in other languages. That's what tongues is. And some people have the ability to hear that and to interpret it. Now again, if you look at this from a naturalistic perspective, this is all weird stuff, right? But if you believe that in a supernatural universe, if at least there's at least, if there is at least one non-physical person, God, then everything's on the table. If God created the world, then it's possible that he intervenes in the world, right? It's just simple logic there, right? So, you know, in the Christian perspective on reality, this actually makes a lot of sense. Now, here's something that I want to make this a little bit more, like, real for us. We at Hope Denver, we believe in small groups. We have hope groups that's a key part of the regular rhythm of our lives. These gifts should be practiced in those groups. These gifts should be practiced when you're here, you're with people, you're with, you're with God's people, you have an opportunity, you have my permission to do that. You have the pastors of this church, but you have our permission to do that. And it's okay to make mistakes. <laughs> it's okay to try, say, hey, I think maybe God's saying this, I'm not really sure, and to say it. And then the good thing is that you have somebody probably around you who has the gift of just discerning between spirits who can say, you know what, that, that was right. But it's okay to make a mistake. It's okay if it wasn't. It's not like God's going to like, you know. We all make mistakes. It's okay. So keep practicing the gifts. Try practicing the gifts. Let's look at verse 12. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So again, this, this passage affirms diversity. But you notice this about a body. Being a part of a body is not voluntary for its members. There's no hands who are like, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to join that body. I'm in, you know? That doesn't happen. If you're, if you're part of a body, you're in it. You're stuck in it. And yet sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we think that membership in a deep community of people who follow Jesus is optional. And it's simply not. That a body doesn't say to the, or a hand doesn't say to the rest of the body, like, hey, you know what? 
I'm not really feeling it anymore. This isn't really my thing. Now, I know some people, they kind of are into this body stuff. They like this, you know, being apart kind of thing. But I'm a ham. I don't really need this. That's ridiculous. It's absurd. Now, here's the thing. Ancient writers, when they, they would actually often use this metaphor of being a part of a body um, in their writing to talk about the relationship between people who lived in some kind of civil society. So this isn't like a new metaphor for the people who are reading or listening to this book. Um, but the, the way that the metaphor was almost always used in the ancient world was to talk about how your part in the body represented your relative value to the rest of the body and how some parts are more important than others. So hands and eyes are more important than knees and feet or whatever, you know? And this, this, really, this way of using this metaphor was used so as to show here's why the people who have the power ought to have it. Because they're the head. Of course they should have power. But this is not how it works in the family of God. And this is good news. Each member of the body is equal and different and good. Christ is the head. Now, there's no superiority here of one class over another. And you can say what you want about Western society. Western society has, has problems. If you live in it, you understand, of course, and you all do. But the idea that the individual has true, equal, and inherent value, regardless of one's political power or one's natural abilities or gender, only arises in the Christian worldview in the Christian West. There's no other perspective, there's no other civilization who gives you women, slaves, poor, rich, brown, white, or equal. This arises in the Christian West. Now, I'm not saying the Christian West has lived up to this. Of course we haven't. We have many sins for which we need to repent for on a regular basis. And yet, this is something that's, that you see coming from the Christian perspective on reality, that the individual has inalienable rights. That the individual is good regardless of their abilities. This is why in our culture we have, you know, we have the American, uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. Is that we recognize that people have inherent value regardless of whether or not they can walk or see or hear. If you're brown or white or if you're a woman or you're a man, that you are made by God and you, you have his image living in you. And you have inherent worth and value. Now these people, the people of God, they're part of his body. They're made, despite their diversity, they're part of this unity, this body, because they've been baptized. Do you notice that in there? It talks about one baptism, that the Spirit baptizes. This is cool because a baptism in the ancient world was like a kind of initiation. And this is something that Jesus commanded of his followers to do. To have, have kind of a ceremony, and it doesn't have to be really formal and a big deal, but have a ceremony where you'd say, hey, you know what? I am indeed a part of this body, and I'm going to follow Jesus with these people. Uh, a few weeks ago, we baptized seven people at Hope Denver. I, this is awesome. The reason we're excited about this, and a little bit excited, seven people we baptized. Is that cool? Is that a cool thing? Yeah, this is awesome. Praise God for that. Here's why this is really cool if you're kind of newer to Hope Denver. It's like, we're, we're a baby church. Like, we're, we're brand new. If you, if you wondered, like, 
hey, why, I wonder why they don't do this. That's <laughs> because we're new. We, we can't do a lot of stuff right now. We're brand new, right? We're a baby church, and seven people got baptized here. Praise God for that. This is an awesome thing. If you feel the calling to get baptized in water, you're not, by the way, getting baptized into Hope Denver. You're getting baptized into the family of God. If you want to do this, man, talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. Uh, will you guys raise your hands really quick, pastors? Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to somebody who has a lanyard. Fill out a Connect card. We'll make it happen, right? And it'll be, it'll be awesome. It'll be really good. So that's something that, that is a key part of being a member of the family of God. But it says that not only are you baptized in water, but you drink it. <laughs> And that's like, what? Did you notice that? You drink it? Like, that's a little bit yucky. And I know that because I helped to clean out the baptistry after the last one. Like, we're not going to make you drink it. <laughs> but the, the drinking of the water here is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And you saw that in this song that we sang earlier. Living water, river wild in me. We believe that the Holy Spirit lives in you when you confess that Jesus is Lord. When you say that I believe in Jesus that God's presence actually lives in you. That's an awesome thing. This means that, that being, um, being a follower of Jesus is not about um, behavior modification. It's not about, like, I'm going to try to be good now. It's about God living in you and changing in a radical way. What's cool about this is that Everybody's welcome into it. Did you notice that it talks about Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free? The worldview of, uh, that people would have had in Corinth would have been highly racist. The word barbarian comes from this time, and it refers to anybody who doesn't speak Greek. <laughs> they lived in a racist and in a sexist world, right? Uh, the philosopher Aristotle that women were just defective men. This is the world that people were coming from as they, as they stepped into following Jesus. Christianity is inherently anti-racist and anti-sexist. Now, that doesn't mean that we've always lived up to it. Christians, again, we have many sins that we need to repent of. And yet, the perspective of the Bible and the way that Jesus lived his life, the kind of rhythm that I'm asking you to consider, the kind of life with God that I'm calling you into is a life where everybody has value. That, it doesn't, that your race and your gender doesn't matter. That God equally affirms everybody. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing in a different place. He, he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. All are constituted as part of God's family. All are one in Christ Jesus. The Bible affirms your oneness and your differentness. Look at verse 15. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they are all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. There's some things that you could do that you could tell yourself, and I don't say this to judge you, but there's things that you could tell yourself that would be excuses to get you out of this kind of deep commitment to the body of Christ that I think this passage assumes. One is to devalue yourself. I'm just a foot, you know, I'm not important. You know, I, I'm not like that person. I don't, I'm, I'm not like really charismatic like that person. I'm not talented like he is. I'm not, I'm not as good looking as that person. 
There's ways that you can disqualify yourself out of the gate to being a part of God's family. And you saying that does nothing to remove you from the body of Christ. You are a part of his body, and you're equally valued. You're just as important. No matter what your background is, you're deeply valued by God. The other thing that we can do is we can often devalue others. We can say like, hey, look, I I don't know. I I don't really want to associate with those people. They're weirdos. And like, we're a Pentecostal church. We're weirdos. (laughs) Think about this for a second. We believe that God empowers some people to speak in different languages. That's weird, right? That's strange. Let me just get back to the the basic teaching of Christianity. We believe that we're made right with God by virtue of a Jewish man who died on a Roman cross and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. That's weird. But this is one way to get yourself out of deep commitment to other people, is to look at them and say that they're weirdos. And the thing is that we're all misfits in our own way. We all have problems and hang-ups. None of that does anything to disqualify you from being a part of God's family. God looks at each of you and says, you're my daughter. I love you. He says, you're my son. I've called you and I believe in you and I love you. That's the family of God. When people look down on you because of your gender, ladies, what the Bible says about that, that God exalts those who are humble. He takes those whose heads are down and he lifts them high. That's what God does. The Bible says that those who are last will be first. That's, that's the word of Jesus for you. No matter who you are, you're a member of God's family. Now, the thing is, is that it's God who's placed us here. God, God, it's God who's put us in, those, in these families. And here's the thing, is that God's going to continue to form your character and your abilities. See, one of, one of Paul's assumptions is, again, that God's sovereignty works in tandem with our freedom. So you, you have the ability to keep growing in who you are. That you can be a better version of yourself in community. And this is something that only being rightly connected to the body can do for you. How is it that you can grow as a person unless you have somebody else with whom you share a deep relationship who can say, hey, you know what? Have you thought about this problem? This is kind of an issue in your life. That's how you grow. This is what community does. And it's not easy. It's not comfortable. But it's where the good life happens, friends. It's in that rhythm of community on a regular basis, being with God's people. This is where it happens. This is where the good stuff happens. So if you're you're at Hope Denver... God has placed you here. He's put you in this family, at least for a time. Maybe not for always, right? But he's put you here. So what do you need to do? (laughs) It's time to step up. It's time to step up. We need you as a vital part of the body. Now, I need need a volunteer really quick. Zach, can I have you for just a quick second? If you're, he's like, he has no idea what I'm going to (laughs) do. <laughs> All right, Simon says, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so, Zach has a mouth, right? If you're a, body, a part of the body of Christ and you're a mouth, you're the one who gets to tell people about Jesus, right? And that's a good thing. There's some of you, Pastor Cassie's awesome at this. She's just like as a recruiter. She just gets people like, hey, come to church with me. Come do this. It's awesome. It's an incredible thing. So, a mouth is an important part of the body, right? Now, a foot is an important part of the body, too. Here's Zach's foot right here, right? 
This guy would topple right over without his feet. If he's standing on the floor with just nubs, he's like going right over, right? But the foot gives foundation to everything. It's, it's the ability when, when, you know, when somebody comes to push you around, it's the feet that keep you where you're supposed to be. You need the feet, right? Think of the elbows for a second here, right? And elbow, no, sorry, I'm not gonna hurt you. <laughs> this is how, imagine like bringing somebody along with you. You need an elbow to do that, right? You're like, hey, come to Hope Denver with me. You need an elbow to do that. Thanks, man, good job, all right? You need the different parts of the body. They're all important. Every one of you is needed and wanted here. Look at verse 19 again. It says, It says, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. All parts are needed, and it's absurd to think otherwise. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Friends, we're called to suffer together. Some of you, you need somebody to sit in your suffering with you, and if your suffering has been overwhelming to you, it's because you weren't made to do it alone. You need somebody to share that with. We need to cry together. We need to weep together. We need to say, why God? Together. This is what the community does. And when some of you, you have, you have joyful things in your life, when you have some kind of honorable thing that happens to you, you weren't made to just share that on your own and just say like, hey, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. We need to rejoice with you. Now, one thing that's cool about that is that if you start to get too big of a head, people that are part of your family will help you to recognize, hey, you know what? You're not that awesome, you know? <laughs> God is the one who did this in you. But also, the people that you have deep connection with, that if they're happy for you, that makes you feel all the more proud in the right way of what happened to you. You need to rejoice with one another. We need that. And the only way to do it, there's no shortcut for this, guys. It's in the messiness of weekly life, daily life, being with other Christians, sharing a meal with them, inviting them into your home, coming to church and hanging out in the parlor afterward instead of running away, being in regular life with somebody. It's the only way to do it. There's no shortcuts for this. It takes a rhythm. Look at verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Here's, here's my challenge for you. You may have had an experience in the past with other Christians that's made you cynical. Maybe it's made you skeptical. I think what God would say to you right now is if you put your trust in me, in God, put your trust in him, let him heal that place in your heart where you've been broken in the past. Maybe Christians have let you down. We do that sometimes. Not because we want to or we mean to, but because we're weak and finite and sinful. But put your trust in the Lord again and get into community with God's family. Some of you, you need, you need to, to commit to the regularity of it. That's hard for you. You have your own goals and your own plans, your own vision, and God's saying, submit those things to me. I need to get in the rhythm of this. This needs to be a part of my life. I 
think God's saying that to some of you today. But God, we just open up our hearts to you. Go ahead and just open up your hand uh, before the Lord. Open up your hands just as if your heart is being held right there. And God, we're willing to listen to you. We're willing to obey you. And we're willing to live in the rhythm of community. God, for those of us who've been broken in the past, would you bring your healing touch like only you can? Some of us have deep wounds. Maybe some of us have suffered spiritual abuse before. Bring your healing into those places in Jesus' name. Would you do it by the power of your spirit? Bring that healing, God. You can bring it. Lord, you you fight for us, and it says in the scripture that it's by your stripes that we're healed. So I believe that, and I proclaim it in Jesus' name, that those who are broken would receive their healing because of your spilled blood for us. And help us to step out and trust again put our hope in humanity, but to put our hope in Jesus, the one who was crucified, slain, risen, and the one who's coming again. We put our trust in you today, Jesus. Now, for each one who's here, would you bless them and fill them with the Holy Spirit? Send them out into a dark and hurting world where there's loneliness. God, reach our community with the hope of Jesus through these who have their hands open. Fill us with your spirit in the name of the Father and the Son and that same spirit who's forever praised.